I'm Alan Barr, and this is Radio Free RPG. Hello, I'm Alan Barr, and welcome to Radio Free RPG. Today, I'm joined by my guest, colleague, and friend, Jim Pinto of Postworld Games. Welcome, Jim. That intro is so NPR, I cannot get past it. That is hilarious. I, I warned you. Yeah, no, it was very NPR. I like it. I think the NPR joke they did on Saturday Night Live, that was one of the best sketches for for years. Every time they had somebody on and they were talking real low-key. And then, of course, it was always sexual, but... Well, nothing's perfect. <laughs> but, I mean, it was always so funny. They nailed it. So, Jim, you've been around the RPG industry a long time, not to mention tabletop gaming in general. Yeah, yeah. I've been gaming over 40 years. Yes, and you've been working in the industry for close to 30 now at this point, I would think. Yeah, yeah, close to 30. And you've done everything. Oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. I was going to say you've done everything from RPGs to board games to trading card games and a lot of stuff in between. I even worked on a miniatures game. Oh, you've even done there. You've hit the all four of the pillars there. Yep, I've got an egot. Yes, the uh, industry egot. You just need to do video games. Oh so yeah, can, yeah, yeah, yeah. So you can the, retire safely. That's the holy grail, isn't it? Yeah. So walk me through sort of your how you started working in gaming and what led to that and what you've done. Um, I never intended to be in the hobby. It was never a goal of mine. I didn't, I was just working as a tech writer for a small technology firm and Shadis magazine was hiring. I heard through the grapevine that they're hiring. And as a joke, I sent my resume back in the day of the faxes. I faxed my resume and Maureen Yates was the woman in charge at the time, right under Zinzer. Uh, and uh, she knew me from a job interview a year before at another company. She saw my name and she said, oh, we got to hire this guy. And, okay. Um, that's how I got in the hobby. And I stayed, I stayed there for, I mean, more than I long, longer than I should have. But I think once you're in, you're getting paid nothing. You can't really afford to leave without a safety net somewhere. And I'm not a computer programmer. I'm not a coder. I don't have those sets of skills. I've always had sort of a generalist skill set. And so I couldn't leave even after it was abusive and I should have gone. Um, I stuck around and here I am still doing it because I don't know how to do anything else. I think, I think a lot of us who, you know, in my case, I left um, project management and software to the game industry and it, that, particular sector moved so quickly that if I were to go back even three or four years later now, I would be woefully out of date. Yeah. And that, that can make it hard to feel like you have a healthy backup plan. Yeah. I think if I left now and I went to go work somewhere, I'd have to work in a warehouse somewhere. Cause it's work that anybody can get is warehouse work. Um, but I, I don't know how fulfilling it would be. Right. Obviously, it would pay right. the bills better than this does, but um, I don't know. I don't know. That's a that's a really complicated topic, and I, I don't it, know how deep we want to get into that. 
I don't know if there's a lot of easy answers either, unfortunately. Without but. sounding maudlin or cynical, we're at a stage in capitalism where nobody can solve any problems, so everybody's just trying to become as rich as they can to avoid the problems. And so when you're at this tier, changing my income by 50, 60, 70% from what I'm doing to go work in a warehouse, is that really going to make a difference in what right. my future is, how I retire? Probably not. Or even retire. Yeah, yeah. No, our generation is certainly going to work till we die. Yeah. Yes. I, I had to point out to somebody that I am, in fact, a millennial. Um, and I'm closer to 40 than anything else at this point. And we I need see. to stop assuming I get to retire. <laughs> I, yeah. And, and it, it's I, I'll let it go. Let it slide this time that you're a millennial. I always forget that you are because you don't. You don't come across that way. I think when we talk about things, you have a different sensibility. Well, I hope that's a good thing. Well, yeah, I don't like to generation bash, right? I don't think there's anything valuable there, but there is a difference between the generations. The ability to communicate about things using specific language. I find myself getting into trouble simply because there's so many missteps you can make when talking with younger people. And when you're talking with my generation, we're not offended by anything. To your to your benefit and detriment. I yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And I'm not saying it's it's great that we're that way, but I mean, when all of your friends are your age, and then you have to start communicating with younger people. I'm not a teacher. I don't hang around with right. anyone younger. Um, so my interaction with millennials is only online, and online is at, never an effective yeah. discourse forum. Yeah, exactly. One out of three interactions, I'm saying something wrong. So. I don't think I mean, I've ever had a problem where you've taken something I meant, said, said or meant in a wrong way. Uh, not that I'm aware of. Um, and I would tell you I'm relatively straightforward that way. So let's talk about post-world games. So right. you've been doing post-world games as long as I've known you. And we've known each other for over half a decade at this point. Yeah. And your two big, I'm going to call them house rule sets, are Praxis and Protocol. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I have other systems, but those are the big ones. So, and now I I have quite a selection of post-world games on my shelf, if not everything, near or close to everything. And I, I find, in particular, the Black Monk series, which, if I'm recalling correctly, is based on Praxis. Yes. Uh, some of the most engaging work you've done. Uh, uh, so thanks. you're welcome. Huh? Walk us through what Praxis is, and then let's let's talk about the Black Monk because I think it's something that stands out uniquely in the RPG industry. Um, so I came up with just I want to talk about Protocol for just a second. I came up with Protocol. I want to say about eight years ago, nine years ago. And I was reading through Life on Mars by Ross Kalman, and I thought, oh, my God, there's a simplicity here to how he's presented the rules. I want to do this. Uh, and I made a game. I made home. I made it in the afternoon, play tested it that night with friends. It, we, it worked so well. We played it again. I immediately published it. And right after I published it, I started thinking about a way to do Apocalypse World without a Game Master. And that's how Praxis came about. It was sort of a blend between Apocalypse World and Protocol. 
And so I sat down. I said, well, what, how will it work? There has to be a finite endpoint um, because it's it's GMless and you can't just keep going forever because it's just going to get. The problem with GMless games is it will get gonzo because people are going to get tired or uncreative or they're going to run out of ideas. And then once you reach gonzo, you can't come back from it. And so that's the thing I'm always paying attention to. I'm always looking at. And I said, well, I've got to build everything on the character sheet. I've got to make everything self-encapsulating. And it just happened, right? I just wrote, I just started writing and I made a character sheet for Praxis. And in a day, I think I was done with the design, not the writing, obviously, because it's a hundred page book. But um, Praxis just became this space in between protocol and uh, powered by the apocalypse because I wanted characters to have powers, which you don't have in protocol. And I wanted you to have things that you had to do. The, the, the scene framing that was in my mind, God, maybe 15 years ago, this, okay. you have to accomplish this thing to finish the scene. But I, I never knew how I wanted to write it or how I was going to do it. And so once Praxis was in the works, I just took that idea. I slapped it on the page. And I, like I said, I was done, done in a day. Right. That's I, I find Praxis to be one of the, um, one of my my favorite GMless games to play, um, and I've played quite a few. And it's primarily because of the handholding structure of the scene setup that you yeah. created there. So why don't you give us an example of how this GMless scene would work? Um, so a lot of what I did with the scene framing is I was trying to solve all the stuff that I hated about Fiasco and uh durance and a lot of the the what i call almost passive aggressive scene framing rules that were out there uh and i wanted to say you're the director you're in charge what you say goes in your scene so that in and of itself solves 90 percent of the problems you're going to have with uh a quiet year right i'm not a fan of quiet year either i i've played it a lot but i'm I'm at the point where it's not really a game. It's just a rainy day activity. And I sat down and I said, okay, what does each type of scene do? I've written scripts. I've actually written several screenplays. I've won an award for one of them. And so I know how to structure a movie. I know how to structure a book. How do I make that system so that the players can do it without them knowing that they're doing it? Got it. And so I want to be hands-on and hands-off at the same time. And the scene framing rules, let's say you're the director, you've got a set of scene types that you can direct, um, and they all have a different name, and there's maybe 11 different ones, I think, in practice, maybe 13 different types. I want to do a flashback vignette. Well, there's rules for a flashback vignette, what it can be about, who can be in it, whether or not anybody can talk, how long it can go, that sort of thing. And then in the case, since it's a flashback, nobody can get any milestones, which is what you need to finish the game. So if you're directing a flashback vignette, you're doing it to fill in a gap in the story of how you got here or why the thing you just saw two scenes ago didn't make sense or whatever. You have these tools in front of you to bridge these gaps or bridge these transitions. And those those are very mm-hmm. two very different things that happen yeah. in gaming. And I don't talk about them in the book, but you understand them intuitively. And that's, I guess that's one of the strengths of practice is you understand all of this intuitively, whether or not you understand it 
inherently. Right. Guess that's what I'm trying I, to say. No, and I, I think that's an excellent uh, encapsulation of what you're talking about, which is as members of the pop culture audience, all gamers are to a degree. And we consume a lot of TV and movies and books and comic books and media in general. And that instills a sort of innate awareness, maybe on a subconscious level, of how storytelling unfolds. And so you are leveraging that innate education we've already received to accentuate the gameplay that you've designed by being able to add or remove the parts you think need shoring up. Uh, yeah, yeah, and that's a really great point. I think I think the thing that makes my design ethic different is that I don't consume pop culture the same way other people do. Jim mm-hmm. Pavlik said something really intelligent a long time ago. He he said, people ask me where I get my ideas from, and he says I'm constantly consuming art. I'm constantly reading heavy metal magazine. I'm constantly looking at French impressionists. I'm constantly looking at monsters from other worlds i'm filling myself with ideas that other people have created instead of ideas that other people are regurgitating and doing derivative work of in the postmodern right. world so when you look at say D as a canonical uh contributor to the gaming pantheon you say the same regurgitated ideas for the past 45 50 years sure. D D&D is a superhero game now. It's not a fantasy game, but it's still rooted in the same storytelling structure, the same mm-hmm. ideas. Oh, there's dragons. Oh, there's unicorns. Oh, there's fairies. And right. there's nothing new. So you get to something like Black Monk. We'll get back to my game, Black Monk. I My idea didn't come from anybody in the fantasy pantheon. It came from Anton Chekhov. I read his short story, Black Monk, as I was designing Praxis, and I said, holy shit, there's something here. And then it was uh, Tim Hidalgo, who I I turned to him and I said, I just need some ideas for fantasy character classes. I just give me something. And he threw out five ideas and those names just stuck in there in the first book. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, I added a few more and took away some of his ideas over time, but that group that never, that has nothing to do with D D D had nothing to do with how and why black monk works and it is because i fill myself with ideas outside of pop culture so what are the, what are some of those places you draw those ideas from uh literature uh movie titles i'll see a movie title on netflix i won't even watch the movie i'll just see the title and i'll think oh is that a good name for a game what would that be about And I just start brainstorming that outside of the context of Dungeons Dragons. None of my games start in a tavern. None of my games start with somebody handing you a map because 99% of the hobby is already that. Why would I want to, one, compete with that, and two, repeat it? Right. Okay. So with that in mind what sets black monk apart in terms of its canonical setting because when i read it i find it very refreshing very innovative very focused on providing an experience i don't get from a lot of other rpgs how would you how would you describe that experience 
Um, that that's a great question. Um, I think I it I wanted it to feel like you were reading an issue of Sandman. Okay. And I think Sandman, for all of its pluses and minuses, really changed how how a comic book story was told. I, I mm-hmm. I'm remembering the story where he goes into hell and he has to get his mask. I'm remembering the story where he's just walking around that Ren Fair talking to that guy he's known for 500 years and they're just reminiscing. And I thought to myself, if I combine those two issues, I combine these other issues here. What does that feel like as a story? These people trapped somewhere, these people that have been alive for so long, they don't even know how long they've been here. Why are they still pushing on? And it was that question of why are they still pushing on that, once I asked it, and there's a secret to it, right? I'll never tell anybody. There's this big <laughs> secret behind Black Monk. Um, once I asked and answered that question for myself, it then just became a matter of keeping everybody, what I call story glue, keeping everybody on the same side of the the story with story glue. And uh, I don't know that anybody else uses that term, but you have conceits. C-O-N-C-E-I-T. It's a literary term describes why a story is taking place. You have a conceit that defines what a game is. So in the case of Dungeons and Dragons, it's gold and glory, and we want to go kill monsters. That's it. It's a simple conceit. It's the reason so many sci-fi games suck, so many superhero games suck. They don't have that simple of a conceit. Um, Shadowrun works for certain kinds of players because it has that same exact conceit. And so long as your conceit is that simple, the story glue is that you guys all want the same thing. Well, what's the story glue in Black Monk? You're all trapped in this place. You're immortal, so to speak. And you're trying to figure out why you keep going. That's your story glue. And that is so very different than what you're experiencing when you sit down to play D&D. Because you start drawing a dungeon map when you're planning a game as a dun- dungeon master. You're not doing that here. You're trying to figure out who am I and who are these other people and why are we so miserable? I would, I would liken the black monk in terms of genre, probably closest to a sort of folk horror aesthetic with a strong kind of fantasy overlay on top of it. Yeah. 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 Certainly. And the fantasy is, is razor thin, right? It's, it's a very thin layer of fantasy. Yes. Yes. But I think that's why it, works is the the visual aesthetic is very fantastic in a in a classical fantasy sense um as well as being visually fantastic in terms of the quality of the art yeah and yeah, no no doubt the art is wow yeah uh and it and it hang and those strengths keep you in the book even as you're trying to process a new as you call it conceit which i think is where a lot of role-playing games struggle to onboard their new readers is clearly explaining the conceit. Right. Um, I think the conceit doesn't become clear until you start playing. That's the flaw of all of my game designs is that when you read the book, you there's nothing here. This is weak and you don't get the full experience until you've sat down, made a character and you've played a couple rounds and then you go, Holy crap. That's what this does. This is how this works. But you've attempted to mitigate that, uh, the the hide, hiding the conceit. You've attempted to mitigate it by presenting 
art and writing and visuals that keep somebody engaged until they can learn the conceits. Yeah, that's the hope, right? But you always get those people. I get this response all the time. There's a guy in our group that would never play this. It is the number one reason why my games don't sell. Because of oh, that yeah. one guy? Yeah. There, we, we would love this, but there's a guy in the group that would never play this. And yeah. so... And that guy, whoever he is in all of these groups, he's holding back a lot of people from going outside the, the boundaries. Yeah, it's that one guy at Doug, that Doug that goes to all these tables. <laughs> Doug, if you're listening, we don't mean you. We mean the other Doug. <laughs> we are. We mean the other Doug. Obviously. So, and then, so I, as if it, listeners, if you can't tell, I do love uh, Black Monk and practice quite dearly. Now, I'm also a big fan of Protocol. But one of my favorite things that Jim and post-world games are doing is the Blood Warrens, which is a sort of ongoing uh, dungeon crawl being uh, oh, the every Blood week. War. Right, right, right. Yeah, um, I dropped every- that actually, but go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, oh no. Well, yeah. I love it. It wasn't selling. I, it wasn't selling. Uh, it was taking me a I, long time to write those. I bought them all. Yeah. Uh, but it's an ongoing dungeon that you were you were doing over various parts every week. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, there's five more that should have been coming um, at the very least. But um, do you mean the, the Bloodhound Caves or do you mean the Bloodworns? Uh, the Bloodworns. You were doing okay. the Dungeon 23, I believe, with them. Yeah, yeah. That's what I was doing. Yeah, I just want to make sure. Because I, I did this, I did something else like that, where it was every week something was coming out. Um, with but those... uh, the Bloodhound Caves were with Alyssa Faden, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. She did all these maps, and I was filling them up. And it started out very, very simple. And then, of course, I overdid it with the other ones. Um, I do want to do part six for the Bloodworns. And uh, at, at the very least, I want to do part six. And I would love to, over time, if I could find a way to make it successful, finish the 50-part story that I wanted to write because it was going to get involved. I just think I started out so strong with you're already meeting the queen kind of thing that it felt too high level to begin with. But the the prompts you get, the, the words you get, you had nobility or royalty as the very first week, if I recall or right. ancient or something. I don't remember what they were in what order, but it felt as though the the themes could have been they could have been a little lower key at the beginning and then ramped up. So whoever made that chart curse you. I'm shaking my fist. So another one of the games you've done, and this is, I think this is my definitive favorite work of yours, because uh, I've ran it multiple times, is King for a Day. Oh, okay. I I adore the sandbox campaign of King for a Day. Yeah. It's a very strong um, proto-Dark Ages uh, sort of uh, rural English folk core. Again, we're back to folk yeah. core style setting um, that is a dramatic amount of NPCs story setting. I mean, it's what 400 pages almost. Yeah. Almost 400 pages. Yeah. What, what prompts a King for a day? Like what made you sit down and go, I'm going to make this. Um, 
reading other people's bad ideas or imperfect ideas or just great ideas that aren't executed properly, seeing that over and over and over again, it's one of the things that led to uh, Blood Wraith, right? Okay. Um, that was because somebody did that rat RPG. And I just said, this is so bad. This is so empty. How how can this be a thing? How can this be this best, this good, this sell this well? And so I I sat out to write that. So but in the case of King for a Day, I was I was playing other people's second edition D and D stuff, and I just thought I have so many questions, and the names of these characters are so dumb, and why am I going to this next place? You haven't given me an impetus to do that. You're just telling me the players are going there now. And I said, this needs to be a sandbox. These sorts of things need to be a sandbox. And I had run it uh, about four or five times before I actually sat down and played it. But it was one of my favorite campaigns to run. Um, and it just sort of happened. I I, uh, I was sitting around. I was out of work at the time. It was 2011. And I ran a Kickstarter. And uh, I... Kickstarter was nothing back then. It, I didn't know where it was going to go. I didn't make very much money, but the impetus was there. And once I got into the groove of writing, those extra stories, a lot of those extra stories just came out of me because I had all these NPCs. I had all these un, all these locations. What else could happen in the Shire? Right. Well, it is uh, my favorite thing that you have written. I appreciate that. And I, I will say without sounding arrogant that I think it's the best thing I've ever written simply because of the presentation and the fact that I was, I was just full, so full of fresh ideas after coming out of working for horrible companies. I said, let me do something the way I would do it. Um, and I didn't really worry about what the consumer would have wanted. I was more worried about, would I want this product? And so I think that's why it came out as well as it did. I can't say the same for stuff I've been doing since. Right. So they are, uh, it, it's a wonderful sandbox campaign. And because it's system neutral, it's easily adapted to a lot of different uh, rule sets. You could really run it with anything as long as there's a certain amount of uh, lethality in it, I think. Uh, what, are, what are some of the rule sets you run it with? Uh, I actually used um, Dogs in the Vineyard one time with it. Oh, I, that sounds fantastic. Yeah, I changed it to fantasy, so I changed guns to magic. Um, and that was and that was it. All right, we had the same kinds of stats that you would have in Dogs in the Vineyard. But it worked just so well for what I was trying to do. It was a perfect system. Um, I ran it once with Pathfinder. I hated it. I I've run it with second edition before. I don't think I ever ran it with third. Okay. But uh, I mean, the idea and the story has been in my head for ever. And I'm highly influenced by John Carpenter and movies like alien, the original alien, mm -hmm. not, not the sequel. Um, and so those sorts of things get into my subconscious. And so the horror just seeps into a lot of what I make and then having an anthropology degree, you know, I, I draw upon Ghana. I studied Ghana a lot in college. So I draw upon the dark folklore of Ghana and West Africa a lot when I'm writing these kinds of things. So it's it's almost inevitable that 
some dark horror is going to seep in some folk horror, as you say. Yes. Uh, so one I, so I don't know if you know this, but I ran it with horn. Yeah. 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 I tried once with harm. Go ahead. It was hard. Yeah. No, very it, difficult. it's a difficult system, but it, it is so crunchy and real and unforgiving and low yeah. tech. It's, it's a, it was a wonderful, um, a wonderful experience, yeah. but in the future I would run it with something much less, uh, rules heavy. <laughs> yeah. Dirt. I think if you use Nave or Cairn or any of these lo-fi, low-tech systems, I think it, it'd probably be easier because a lot of your time is spent interacting and right learning mysteries and then learn, finding out, oh, the thing I knew is wrong. Yes, it's uh, but it's an excellent adventure, and I highly recommend it to anybody looking for something kind of different and fresh, um, that will uh kind of get their group hopefully excited and ignite that for them. Uh, let it me did... ask you a question. Absolutely. Without, without giving away the ending, were you surprised at where the story went when you were reading the book? I. Yes, I was surprised. I will caveat that with the the twist and the ending. I won't call it a twist. It's not necessarily a twist. But the ending was not unexpected in that it came out of left field, but it was not the direction I thought it would go, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I was surprised, but I also was, there was this part of me that was aware that that was a possibility. I just didn't think it was the possibility. That was one of my fears when I was doing Fairview, is that people were going to see the the ending coming, the twist coming. Because I had done King for a day. And, right. And so there's always this fear. It's a reason I don't tell what the secret is behind Black Monk. Because if I tell it, then people go, oh yeah, that makes sense. Rather than being impressed or surprised with, oh crap, that's a good twist. So I don't usually put those into games anymore because I fear. But anyway, sure. I'm not trying to bloviate here. I, uh, no. I was honestly curious what you thought. When you got to it, I thought it was, uh, yeah, like I said, it caught me off guard, but it was not a surprise per se. Yeah. I wasn't um, cheating when I gave Right. Sometimes ending. these surprises are uh, cheating, right? Yeah. They, you're just like, oh, and now there's a Cthulhu monster. Yeah. Um, but sometimes it's, uh, sometimes it makes sense and you just didn't think that was the direction. And that's what I got from this. Yeah. And I enjoyed that a lot. I will say one of my players in a joking manner called it earlier like very early in the campaign, just like as a joke. Oh, yeah, like a, I bet X, Y, Z. And I was like, so afraid they were going to run with it, but they dropped it and moved on. Luckily. And I don't think they remembered by the time we got done. Oh, nice. Nice. So I was, cause there was that moment. I'm like, well, we're only three sessions in until like 50 sessions. This is going to, what? No, they can't ruin it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think people try to meta their way into stories. I tried running a Vecna game at a convention and one guy just sat there the entire time pissing on the story and metagaming his way through it and making jokes. And so when he gets to the end, he wasn't having fun. He ruined right. the fun for himself. I, I didn't do anything to him. Yeah. Those, those can be frustrating experiences. So with, uh, with your history in the industry and with, you know, post-world games moving forward. What are some of the things you're trying to do over the next couple of years? What do you have? 
plans or thoughts or kind of designs to make a brief pun uh, on. I have, I believe it or not, I have about 40 games in the works. It's not an exaggeration. Um, and I've been just dragging ass. It's because I'm so pulled, I'm pulled in so many directions. I'm, I'm not making any headway. I think a lot of what I'm doing is actually going backwards. I'm looking at things like D and D and I'm saying, how would I make it? How would I make it better? It's not in a heartbreaker sense. It's how do I solve these problems that I think keep people away from the fun? We know that D and D isn't fun until you get to levels five through 10. That's the real meat of the game. And then it gets to be too much and you don't want to play anymore. And at the beginning levels, you're just afraid of stepping on a nail because it'll kill your wizard. So how do we get to the fun without the five foot steps, without the attacks of opportunity, without all the rules that Pathfinder has so that a wizard can cast two spells in one turn? Why not just let that wizard do that instead of creating 17 pages of Here's all these caveats, and if you follow this mm-hmm. caveat circle, you'll get to two spells in a round. It's that that's just nonsense. That's in that's getting in the way. And I I actually learned this by playing a lot of that. What's that guy's name? The board game guy that made um, Code Names. Oh. Yes, Cholton. I know who you're speaking of. I forget his name. I always forget his name. I don't like any of his games, so it doesn't matter. I'm using him as an example because everything he designs when I sit down to play it, he's keeping me from the fun. The fun thing is going to be when I grab that artifact card, and that's when the game starts ramping into high gear. Why did it have to take two hours to get to that card? Now I'm having fun, but I don't want to play anymore because I'm tired. And there's a lot of designers that do this. I'm just using him as an example because it's off the top of my head, but there's plenty of designers who do this where the fun part of the game where the rules start breaking or the dynamic vectors start to appear out of the design, they keep it away from you for too long. And it's not a video game where you want to ramp up the dread for four hours before they get to the real creepy thing. You could do that alone at home at your own pace but you're at a board game session with your friends. You've only got an hour before everybody's going to start losing energy. That fun better be on turn two. So what in, in a lot of your games, you you've taken that concept of trying to pull the fun to the very forefront or to fix what you view as issues, which I think we should say is, a viewpoint based on your particular play style and how you like to tell stories. Absolutely. Um, because, you know, e- even though you and I are friends, we do differ on some of these. And we've had these conversations where yeah, I've explained, I like my fun this way. Mm-hmm. And then you tell me I'm wrong. And I say, okay, Jim, that's fine. Well, I um, am emperor. So yes, emperor Jim, uh, the worst named Roman emperor. <laughs> emperor Jimmy, I think would be even worse. Fair enough. Uh, so, what are the what are the problems that you face as a designer in trying to accomplish this? Because everybody and their and their pet hamster has a plan to fix D anD. d Right. Um, I, I think anybody who is a game designer has not only had that thought but attempted at least once. Uh, I oh, go ahead. No, I was going to say, what are some of the things that you find uh, you struggle with in that regard? I think that there are two kinds of players that ruin fun for everybody at the table. 
And uh, those are people who are meta min-maxers, right? The ones that are playing the game outside the game. They're, so they're not really playing the same game everyone else is. And people with analysis paralysis. Um, and I want to make games that either they can't break or ruin or that they just don't want to play at all. Right? Keep the min-maxers okay. away from this thing. It only has one stat. They're never going to have fun with it. Um, sure. Can, Lasers can, and feelings is not for min-maxers. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And if you have analysis paralysis, something like Praxis fixes that because here are your only options. This is the scene type you have left to fit, to 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 direct. Here are the milestones that you're trying to accomplish. Here are the mm -hmm. trepidations you are dealing with. And then everything on the left-hand side of the sheet is all the prompts you have to tell you what you're supposed to be doing anyway. So if you're you still don't know what to do. If you're looking at your character sheet for five minutes trying to figure out what to do for a scene, then this isn't the game for you. And I can't solve that level of okay. problem. But analysis paralysis happens because games just have too many choices. And okay. that's great if you're playing. Let's say we're playing first edition D&D, &D, right? And I say, don't worry about the rules, guys. We're just going to do what we want. And we're going to have mm -hmm. fun. That guy is still going to be crippled by, well, what's the right decision to make? instead of what's the fun decision to make right uh chad walker just ran us through his game i drawing a blank on the, the game i'm not even supposed to talk about what the game is but it's a fantasy D, &D ripoff he made his own system uh very dark lots of undead that kind of thing sure. uh, and i'm playing a character that can see the past and future but i'm ineffectual in combat and for my action okay. my I'm surrounded by undead and I don't know what to do. And I just fell into a fetal position. That is not a decision. a min max right. or an AP player would have made in that instance. And right. I think if, if you were, if you're designing games to capture that audience, you're only going to capture that audience and you're going to get rid of the other kinds of players who want, and you're, you're aware of the seven different types of players, right? You've seen that chart. Yes. Yeah. So it's important for us as designers to know that the chart exists, but it's not important for us to go, okay, how do I make this guy happy? Because you can't. You right. have to make yourself happy as a designer. I think if you're Owen Stevens, you're gonna you're going to try to make all those guys happy because you're making those kind of games for that milieu. But if you're me or you're sure. any kind of other indie gamer, game designer, you want to make what you want to play because you've got to demo this thing. You've got to go to conventions and teach people. You've got to go online and have sessions. So why would you make something you don't want to play? Right. Okay. So with that in mind, um, what are the, th oh, what are the Sorry. three role-playing games that have influenced you the most? <clears throat> role-playing games. Oh, interesting. I thought we were going to talk three... about I'm sorry. I thought we were going to talk about designers, but that's fine. Uh, um, you can talk about designers if you no, have no, that as either any of it's fine. What, what are the three biggest influences on you um, in gaming? Twilight 2000, obviously. James okay. Bond. Um, the uh, Victory Games, James yeah, Bond. Yeah, the Victor, Victory Games, James Bond. And yes. a little French game. Of course, I'm a pretentious twat, so I've got to say a little French game from 1988. It's called Trauma. And it came out, it didn't come out in America until, I want to say, 91. But it was in France in 88. And it came into the game store I was working at. I bought it. 
and it blew my mind. It broke me. I didn't realize role-playing games could do that. And, uh, you know, up until then, I was your traditional D&D player. What kind of character right. am I going to make? How is he, what's he going to be good at in combat, et cetera, et cetera. And trauma came out, and I was never the same. And I never went back to that kind of, even as young as 22, right? I didn't go back and uh, play those kinds of games. Those, okay. those traditional hack and slash kinds of games anymore. And if I did, we always did it differently. So what is trauma? Is it trauma or yeah, trauma? T-R-A-U-M-A. Okay. Uh, it is really hard to find. If you go to RPG Geek, you might be able to find it. The designers are Dominique Garnier and uh, Frédéric, how do you pronounce his last name? Le Gonique? I think okay. that's it. So if you go and you look for those two guys, um, I think there's a republishing of Trauma, but the new version on Drive to RPG is about hyperviolence. And this original one is about regular people just dealing with problems. Okay. I'm pulling up drive through RPG now because I want yeah. to see. The new cover is really pretty, by the way. I am. Uh, there's a lot of things with trauma in the name that's yeah. making it hard to search. I'll have to, I'll have to hunt it down. That's, I mean, I I have not read that, so yeah. I'm excited to uh, find out. And if I could add a fourth game, I would probably add Please. Cult or Vampire Dark Ages, right? Oh, Vampire Dark Ages is high on my list as well. Um, when Cult came out, that also had a big infect, effect on me. You could feel the Clive Barker in it. You could feel that these were horrible people, that they were the only defense against the horror that's coming through, the veil kind of mm -hmm. thing. And... I that I wouldn't want to say that's brave, but at the time it was certainly surprising. Right. Um, yeah. So I've always liked cult, and I somebody said something very funny about vampire. They said vampire would be a great game if it wasn't for the players, because there's there's two different kinds of people that want to play it. Right. There are people that actually want to play the politics, and there's people that just want to show up and and mope, so to speak. They just sit around drinking wine or whatever they're doing and they're just feeling the aesthetic and those two groups should not be playing together. Interesting. Well, uh, Jim, I have a, I have a question for you. Um, I've warned you in advance about my question of, uh, asking you what you would like to be asked. So what is, what is one question that you would like to be asked in an interview? Um, I think, Everybody should be asked this question, which is why do you continue to do it? Why do you continue to publish sure. in the face of an audience that doesn't appreciate what you're doing in the face of poor payment or, you know, now we're dealing with AI trying to strip away artists ability to make money. Um, we're looking at a, an environment where everybody was mad at Watsy at the beginning of the year and now they're flooding to see the movie and it doesn't make any sense. And there's so much, hypocrisy and hypercriticism going on in this hobby why do you do it i think that's a question we should all ask ourselves why do we continue to do it and what is the answer for well, jim pinto and post world games what would i do if i wasn't doing this right i love this hobby so much i just said all these cynical things about it but i still love this hobby i love showing up to play the con seeing my old friends sitting down for we, we played four parts of black monk 
down in Portland at one convention on the same day. And I wanted to play the fifth one, but they were all exhausted. The the ability to do that, right? To have these kinds of friends, people that that honestly share the same kind of sentiments for gaming. I can take fifty five kicks in the junk by by fans if I get to game on the weekend with guys like Jerry and uh, we have gamed in a long time together. But even with you and. Some of my best friends, my buddy, buddy, Aaron Kutzman. I got to give a shout out to my buddy, Eric Kutzman. He is the best role player I've ever met in my life. And I haven't gotten to game with him in years. And we shared the best game session I've ever had years ago down in Long Beach. And I still write about it in books for gaming advice. So that's why I keep doing it, because there are people out there that do appreciate it. Okay. Well, I mean, that's as good an answer as I think we can give, considering everything. Uh, why do you continue to do it? I, a little bit, I'm too stupid to stop. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Uh, there you go. Um, I think, for me, a part of it is I, and to to avoid, it's hard to answer that sometimes without sounding like you have an ego. Um, sure. But I think I'm very good at it. And I want to keep doing that. Mm -hmm. Um, And I will also say part of it is that I feel as though I can uh, make a difference, at least for people I work with. Mm -hmm. And so I'm always trying to argue for better pay to argue for uh, items like that, where I want people to get something out of it um and you know for me that has been this um working with people and being able to pay them more uh, being able to help them get more out of the industry and the uh, platform like this where they get to talk about what they feel is good and bad and all of these various pieces well, uh, you know what I'm like on Facebook. I'm, I'm very much a curmudgeon. I hate everything. But uh, you you and I sitting down like this, I could, I could talk to you for six hours, right? We could talk about right. gaming nonstop because we actually do really love this. And there's so many pieces to it that we want to see flourish. And I agree with you, by the way, on the helping people pay their bills, right? I have I have sent people money, artists money, so that they won't get evicted, right? Right. And, it feels, and then of course they do art in return. I'm not just giving money away, but knowing that you're the guy at the right place at the right time, and you can make a difference that way by making up these stupid, silly no. worlds. That's that's got to feel good at some point. And I don't think that's arrogant. Yeah, and so this is where you know that that's my direction. That's my. Uh, I, I just love doing it. I love seeing the smiles on faces. We had some posts in our Gallant Night Games group about a, a father playing with his kids. Yeah. And posting the characters they were drawing and how his daughter, uh, they, they had had some family stuff. And so I had sent them a care package because they've been fans and in the group for a long time. And we've interacted a lot. And he's always been really good about promoting our games for people. And so I sent them a care package and I included some games for his children um, including their own copies of Tiny Supers. Uh, I didn't know this, but his daughter is a massive superhero fan. 
And when she did not know there was a superhero book, and now she has roped her family and she's going to be running this game uh, with tiny supers. Right. And you know, she's eight or nine and she's so excited. And he's been posting pictures of her drawing all the characters and the villain. So. <laughs> and, and it's hard not to want to keep doing it when that's happening. No, that no definitely. It, yeah. Um, so for me, that that's the big thing. Jim, it has been a genuine pleasure having you on. Yeah. Um, I think we should, I think in the future we'll do a repeat because there are some more things I want to talk about with you that we didn't get a chance to touch on too much. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I know um, there's, there are other topics and this is oh, a blast, Alan. Good. I'm glad. Um, do you have any other questions for me? You're welcome to ask me anything you want. No, no, no. I, you don't want this running forever. Are you drinking liquid death? I, I am. Yeah. I'm, it's my solution. I'm trying to cut out sugar. Yeah. More. yeah. So it, it hits the note that makes me not want to get a monster or a soda or something. So I got to tell a story about liquid death really quick. Please. In my fridge is a can of liquid death and a can of Irish death. Irish death is a stout beer and liquid death is sparkling water, as you know, but it's very light, barely any sparkling to it. Uh, the, both the cans look identical. Um, Except uh, Irish Death is um, more of a gold color to the logo, and Liquid Death is silvery. And I went in there in the middle of the night thinking I'm getting water, and I popped the Irish out. And I, you know, I wanted, I just wanted to go right back to sleep. I was just getting some water, and it was just the funniest thing to happen to myself. Yes, I sabotaged uh, myself. That sounds like your career in a nutshell, Jim. Yeah. <laughs> All right. All, all joking aside, Jim, it's a pleasure. Where can folks find you if they want to support you or purchase your stuff that we've talked about? Um, I mean, I'm on Drive Through RPG. That's the only place I sell my games. Uh, you can find Under me. They're Post World Games. Yeah, and you could talk to me on Facebook or Twitter. I'm really approachable. I have an Instagram, but I've never posted on it, and I don't even know how to log back in. So, don't find me uh, there, dear listeners. When Jim says he's approachable, I, keep in mind he called himself a curmudgeon earlier in the show. So just weigh those two things. Yeah, but if you As, really want to talk gaming with me and not make a stupid Star Wars meme, absolutely. May the 4th is the worst day of the year for those of us that hate Star Wars. And folks, on that note, we are going to uh, we're going to hang up the show and I'm going <laughs> to let Jim go. Uh, folks, I'm Alan Barr and this has been Radio Free RPG. How long did we go? 